Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guests today are Asla Adintashbash and Chinzia Bianco. Asla is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and Chinzia is a visiting fellow at the Council. They have co-authored the paper Useful Enemies, How the Turkey-UAE Rivalry is Remaking the Middle East. It's available on the ECFR website, that's ecfr.eu, and it's well worth a read. Useful Enemies is the focus of our conversation today. Chinzia, Asla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bill. Good to be here. All right, I'm going to kick off with you, Asla. The, the contretemps between Turkey and the UAE is often framed kind of simplistically as pro-Islamist Ankara versus anti-Islamist Abu Dhabi. But as, as your paper makes abundantly clear, it is much more than that. It's, uh, quote, more about geopolitics than ideology. Can you drill down for me on that point? Yes, Bill. Um, both countries uh, have benefited a good deal from positioning this conflict as a core ideological rivalry. And of course, for UAE, it was uh, a very useful tag externally, particularly in Western capitals. It's the moderates against Islamist Turkey, uh, particularly Islamist Erdogan. And for Turkey, it really worked for domestic audiences uh, vis-a-vis Erdogan's base to position this as part of a grand vast external conspiracy to bring down Erdogan, to bring down his Justice and Development Party. But internally, the positioning was it's a fight of democracies against Gulf monarchies. But we wanted to you know, peel away these uh, layers and labels and, and actually scratch the surface, which does reveal a fierce geopolitical competition that stretches across the MENA region, across the Middle East, and includes definitely uh, not Libya, but not just Libya, uh, Eastern Mediterranean, uh, as we've seen last year with sort of tensions flaring up in that region, uh, Syria, parts of Africa. And of course, this was a competition very much packaged as an ideological rivalry by both sides, but this was a competition that took place in European capitals, uh, in Washington, Brussels, Berlin, Paris, of course, important. Both sides using this, this sort of presumed ideological warfare to make their own case, to lobby for their own interests. And, and, and of course, in the case of Turkey, this has been part of Erdogan's, AKP's overall narrative uh, domestically, election after election, and in Turkey elections do matter, election after election, you know, it was they're all against us, they're all together in this, they've tried, they're trying to bring down Erdogan, and uh, UAE was, has been a constant theme, as, as, as of course, as was the US, but constant theme, see, themes since, since the failed coup attempt of 2016 in election campaigns being used as sort of one of Turkey's and Erdogan's arch nemesis and rivals. And I think that it does it did play an important role. There's one quote from an official that I spoke to. He said, you know, we are not 
a perfect democracy. We're an imperfect democracy in the code, but we definitely are a different model. And I think that people, Turks have used this, Turkish government has used this vis-a-vis AKP base, but also as a message towards other, uh, particularly Sunni Arab constituencies across the region. So on the surface, this is a fight about Muslim Brotherhood, this is a fight about model of governance, but scratch the surface, there's a fierce competition for control of various parts of the MENA region. Mm, interesting. Now, Chinzia, reading the paper, I was struck by how you placed the Mediterranean as the emerging focal point of tension and competition, the next big theater. And much of the tension in Turkey's eyes centers on the East Med pipeline project. Tell us a little bit about the project, how it came about, and, and how it's making Ankara feel uncomfortable and rather menaced by it. Yeah, so um, let me first talk about a little bit about the geopolitical picture and why therefore the Mediterranean I think is, we think is going to be a, a a primary area for the competition between Turkey and the United Arab Emirates in the coming future. Um, especially if you look at it from um, the UAE perspective, but that, and I will explain how also uh, applies to Turkey, the Mediterranean is, is very much at the crossroads uh, between uh, Asia and uh, Europe. And these trends of interconnectivity, of globalization, despite the pandemic, show no sign of abating. We continue to see a lot of interest and a strategic kind of interest into um, working on, on furthering interconnectivity at all levels, energy infrastructures, digital infrastructures, the uh, trade routes, and very much so also uh, the, for instance, uh, uh, industrial value chain being uh, uh, globalized. The, the story here is that those two continents, Asia and Europe, are coming closer, are becoming more and more interconnected. And from a, a UAE's point of view, the Arabian Peninsula is, and the Red Sea as a body of water is right in the middle of that is at the crossroads of that. So the UAE already is positioned in a very favorable way in the Horn of Africa, for instance, with a penetration on the maritime infrastructure there. Um, they, have, they are politically very well influenced in uh, um, the African coast, across the African coast and the North African coast. And we know of, uh, for instance, their strong relations uh, to Egypt. So uh, to basically the missing link to really get uh, that dynamism going to Europe is precisely the Mediterranean. And there it is also where, of course, Turkey's core interests are, not only because Turkey is a Mediterranean country, but also because Turkey has traditionally and still retains a geopolitically strategic position precisely on, at the center of other uh, flows and, uh, and uh, links between Asia and, and Europe. So we're really seeing, if you, if you try to look at the big picture, we're really seeing two middle powers that are using their tools, which are of course very different, but still uh, uh, quite relevant to um, have a key role in that story of interconnectivity between Asia and Europe, which inevitably has to go through 
the Mediterranean. So in that context, uh, a project like the EastMed pipeline that was supposed to link together different um, oil uh, and gas uh, resources into one infrastructure and then uh, uh, really connect and bring that, that energy, in particular gas, to uh, Europe was, of course, a crucial piece of this, uh, this story of interconnectivity. The reality is that the way that this story was being written was basically cutting off Turkey from the picture um, and going bypassing it and going around it and really leaving it out of that very um, ambitious project. So this is why Turkey was uh, extremely nervous. Fast forward to today, basically, that particular project uh, is a little bit shelved. Um, we will probably continue to be talking about energy cooperation in the Eastern Mediterranean, but things are much more fluid now. And this is why also in our paper, we address um, ideas to uh, remodule that project and, be, and, and make it more inclusive in a way that would de-escalate uh, uh, concerns on behalf of Turkey, but tensions in general between the European uh, and, the, and the Mediterranean side there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting to say. Shelved somewhat for the time being, but still very much in play. Let me ask you, Asla. Uh, there are many points of contestation between Turkey and the UAE, uh, Libya, as your colleague at ECFR, uh, Tarek Megarisi, has discussed here in the podcast, uh, is the most visible. With the Turks, of course, securing the Tripoli government just at the point when the UAE-backed warlord Khalifa Haftar was poised to topple. Uh, that government. But, but, but let me move on. And, and, and you mentioned Syria. Let me ask you, Asla, about Syria and how the rivalry is playing out there. Bill, um, before going into Sy Syria, uh, just a, a quick word on Libya, because I mean, Tarek explains this beautifully, but as you have pointed out, Turkey's entry into the Libyan war, its deployment in Libya was essentially entering into a proxy conflict with the UAE. So they are very much locked in a proxy war with the United Arab Emirates supporting Haftar and Turkey supporting GNA, the Tripoli government, and that's continued on. And could to this day provides the background to the uh, political story with the Berlin process. Syria is interesting because uh, in some ways it is the classic example of my enemy's enemy is my, my, my friend situation in the sense that um, I think obviously Turkey has very much uh, abandoned the peace process with the Kurds back in 2015. And really positioned itself to uh, in, in Syria, uh, starting in 2016, to push back against a resurgent uh, US-backed Kurdish entity there. Abu Dhabi has cautiously, uh, but has reached out to Kurds. And, uh, and this happened in several ways. One was, uh, of course, leading Arab became a leading Arab voice in condemning Turkish, in, in criticizing Turkish incursions in Syria. And there's been a number of these in 2016, uh, again in Afrin in 2018, and uh, more famously in the Northeast, in uh, the town of Tel Abyad, uh, establishing uh, in 2000, October 2019, 
all leading to the establishment of a Turkey-backed 30-kilometer Turkey-controlled zone in Syria. And I think that uh, Abu Dhabi played, along with Saudi Arabia, played a significant role in, in sort of uh, positioning the Arab League in, uh, as describing this as an incursion into Arab, uh, an Arab country, therefore criticizing it publicly. But there's been other elements of this, this rivalry playing out in Syria, namely support for SDF forces, the uh, US-backed Kurdish-dominated Syrian Democratic forces, which control territories below the Turkey-backed zone, but are accused by Turkey of being aligned with uh, the PKK. It's, it, it's uh, it, Kurdish insurgents that Turkey has been fighting since the 80s. Now, how uh, well defined this relationship is, we don't really know. We do know that uh, UAE has contributed to the stabilization efforts in that area during the Trump administration, stabilization aid and humanitarian aid to SDF controlled areas. There have been rumors, of course, of military assistance, but it, it's got to be at a level that is not big enough to notice to get international attention. So, and we are not in a position to verify these rumors, nor are we in a position to verify rumors that the SDF leaders leader, uh, uh, Mazum Kobani, has visited Abu Dhabi. So we don't know these. But when I asked about this, plenty of information about Kurds being backed by Saudi Arabia or UAE alongside United States in Turkish media, but it's hard to verify these accounts. So in the end, when I interviewed a Turkish official about this, he said, it's not a, a, this support or this relationship with the Kurds is not a, at a level that poses a threat to us, but it is annoying us, he said. So that I thought was explained at all. But then there's other ways, of course, that United Arab Emirates has been uh, focused on Syria in a way that really uh, upsets or irritates Turkey or is counter to Turkish policy towards Syria, which is establishing relations with the Assad regime. Uh, Erdogan has not been, you know, had, had, uh, he, he took a very anti-Assad, anti-regime policy early in the civil war, in fact, calling for regime change, working towards, a, towards regime change. And he has not been able to pivot over the last few years, even though the situation is very clear in Syria now, Assad is Assad regime is staying in power. And I think that UAE efforts uh, you know, to establish representation in Damascus, have Arab League or some other Arab uh, Gulf countries reach out to the Assad regime are, are really making Turkey's Syria policy irrelevant at this point. So in that sense, they're also undercutting Turkey's sort of longstanding position and clearly a source of uh, irritation to Ankara. Yeah, as you say, annoyance, but but not yet going beyond that. Cinzia, here we have two powerful leaders with big ambitions, Erdogan and MBZ, and they've been really enabled by the uh, withdrawal, diplomatic, uh, and I suppose military of the United States on the one hand, and on the other, the hesitation and this conflicted response of Europe. So there's been this vacuum, and these two guys have, are just poised and striving to see who is going to be the one to fill it. Can, can you dive into that one for us a little bit? Yeah, that's uh, uh, the the power dynamics around uh, uh, the the competition between Turkey and the UAE are 
fascinating in the sense that uh, they are, as you were saying, Bill, very much a byproduct of uh, broader geopolitical trends uh, that, of course, start with uh, the retrenchment and retreat of the United States. And uh, the U.S. is, uh, I think, now sending quite clear signals that they are less and less interested in the region. And um, I mean, the Europeans are still uh, coming to terms with this new geopolitical reality. And uh, many European officials in uh, uh, individual countries' capitals still uh, are hesitant to really acknowledge and accept the fact that the U.S. Uh, is stepping back from the Middle East, that they are no longer as interested, and that there will be a vacuum as a result of that. And this, and this, I think, explains the hesitation of many European players to uh, uh, really think about how to fill that vacuum because they don't acknowledge the vacuum in the first place in many cases. Uh, from a regional point of view, of course, instead, it's uh, much, much clearer because uh, these countries, uh, Turkey, the UAE, other Gulf countries, um, and other Middle Eastern countries at large, for them, there is no doubt this is happening, that the U.S. is uh, uh, repositioning and uh, in doing so uh, is uh, eager to um, take steps back. So the very much the rationale was there is this vacuum if we don't fill it our rivals will. And that's precisely the case that we have seen uh, the dynamic that we have seen playing out between Turkey on one side and the UAE on the other side. And I would dare to say, especially in the first uh, um, years of this past decade, Turkey and Qatar on one side and to a, to, a, to a certain extent the UAE and Saudi Arabia on the other. We have seen that sort of uh, uh, rationale, very much a zero-sum game mentality of there is this vacuum, either we fill it or our rivals will, so we have to move first and fast and strongly. Um, I think it's interesting that in 2021, so this year, uh, as the Biden administration took office, and that U.S. repositioning and retreat is still uh, valid, but it's also taking different shapes. We see uh, a moment of strategic pause on behalf of also the regional players. Uh, that doesn't mean that we are, are seeing sustainable detente. Uh, in fact, we argue in our uh, paper that uh, we should. it's dangerous to see that this regional uh, um, new regional dynamics as signs of uh, detente or a de-escalation process that is sustainable and that is durable. But we do see a strategic pause where regional players are consolidating whatever advantage they have gained in the past 10 years of confrontation to fill the vacuum. Mm, interesting. W waiting to see what Biden and will do, how he'll play his hand. Well, the indications are, as you say, that he is in, in withdrawal mode, which is very much part and parcel of what Obama played and, and certainly Donald Trump played. Um, I want to raise this point though, Asla, because we've got this great rivalry, these two characters, Erdogan and MBZ, but, but as with any great contestation, there's some fascinating supporting actors. And I want to ask you about Muhammad Alan. Tell us what you know about the man and, and, you know, this claim, the Turkish claim that he worked with the UAE to overthrow Erdogan in 2016. Well, Bill, um, Mohamed Dahlan is a well-known figure in the Middle East as an ex-Fatah leader, but he's only come to be known in Turkey after 2000, the 2016 coup attempt. 
when Turks have started hearing his name uh, with the government officially singling him out, pointing fingers uh, at him as a UAE pawn or UAE operator who helped organize the coup. This was initially a, a sort of a mention here and there right after the failed coup attempt, anonymous source. But then you had Turkish foreign minister, Turkish officials, Turkish leading Turkish AKP officials openly citing uh, Dahlan as as sort of the hand of the UAE government and supporting the coup in channeling, funneling money into Gulenist networks. Now, obviously, we have no way of verifying these claims, Chinsia and me. We're just here to report that these allegations are aired. But it wasn't a light mention and a drop here and there. It was very much the core focus of AKP's overarching narrative about how the coup attempt was a vast conspiracy. And in that global conspiracy against Erdogan, and in that whole narrative, UAE and specifically Mohammed bin Zayed and Dahlan were often mentioned in pro-government media outlets, you know, with various allegations. Just two weeks ago, uh, you had the Minister of Interior, not two weeks ago, last week, Turkish Minister of Interiors, who was embroiled in a domestic scandal at home in Turkey about uh, relations with a mafia leader, singled out uh, UAE once again as the co-organizer of the coup attempt of 2016 alongside United States. So you clearly had publicly in a television interview uh, so Dahlan and this whole uh, theme, uh, UAE, US, Saudi plot was a constant theme in Turkey's pro-government media. But you have another character that uh, some of your uh, listeners may not have heard of, but he's, uh, uh, he's, he's very much uh, gained prominence over the last few weeks. Uh, this is a former mafia, well, not former, a, a proper organized crime boss, a mafia boss, uh, who was uh, part of Erdogan's ruling nationalist coalition, very much backing government's efforts to intimidate uh, opponents and critics and academics, and uh, very much uh, clearly involved in the extrajudicial, some of the extrajudicial killings going back to the 90s. He has aligned himself with Erdogan following the failed coup attempt as, as uh, alongside other nationalist and ultra-nationalist figures. He's now left Turkey and is do doing these video drops, these huge revelations that are rattling the Turkish government. He's a household name in Turkey. What is the UAE angle? Well, he says in these uh, video uh, recordings that are watched by millions of Turks every day, he says that he's, uh, he's staying in uh, UAE. So that is another interesting twist to this whole story. This is an evergreen, a theme that is clearly keeps giving and uh, has to do with the, the way the, the current regime in Turkey positions itself. And, and this mafiosa uh, uh, character, what's his name? Sedat Pekar is his name. It, uh, it has all the makings of a Netflix uh, series, doesn't it? No, it's Turkey's own um, narcos, that's clear. Um, now look, Tinja, I, I wanted to, to ask you about uh, the PR battle and how that's playing out, as you, you mentioned, various uh, capitals, Washington, Brussels, Berlin. 
Um, your paper, your and Asla's paper, Useful Enemies, it argues that the UAE is, is winning this, this particular battle. How are they doing that? I mean, the, the UAE has invested so much in uh, PR and strategic communications um, and uh, uh, the, the media and the narrative. Uh, they really know uh, what they're doing. They have strategies. Uh, they can adapt the narrative to the local context and they have a variety of tools. They have, I think, one of the most, uh, one of the strongest lobby groups in the U.S. And uh, uh, they engage across the board uh, with, for instance, uh, think tanks, with uh, congressmen, with civil servants to a certain extent, with uh, you know uh, um, people working uh, with journalists, with people working in different uh, um, sectors in the public sphere, and. For instance, we highlight in the paper that uh, the UAE's lobby has had a some significant role into encouraging the um, the the approval of uh, sanctions against Turkey in particular. And on the other side of the of the ocean, in Europe, throughout Europe. Uh, the UAE has uh, again engaged at different levels. They, of course, have uh, uh, the conversations across the board with intellectuals, with think tanks, but we're also with politicians. And again, they have ad adapted their messages very much. So, for instance, in a context like France, where after the 2015 um, jihadi attacks, terrorist attacks, the Wider the general public has become very strongly anti-Islamist in all of the different nuances. They have rode this sentiment to really acquaint Turkey with a uh, supporter of Islamism and therefore of extremism, as they have done against Qatar, by the way. And this way of framing the argument has been uh, very successful in making inroads with the wider public, with the journalists, uh, public voices, and with politicians at all levels, the local level and national level. And I mean, I mean the UAE has, uh, has really taken advantage of this uh, sentiment and, uh, and wrote it. And they have done uh, the same way, for instance, uh, um, vis-a-vis uh, the, -vis the Arab public opinion where they have clearly tried to frame their competition with Turkey by saying that Turkey is an Islamist actor that wants to keep the region in the past, um, that it's obscurantist because it is too religious, uh, and, and uh, 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 on the opposite, and the UAE is modern, is about science, is about technology, is about progress, is about taking the Arabs to Mars. And so... They have invested quite a lot and they have developed these narratives that are tailored, that are effective and that they have really um, brought some political advantage to their side. Mm, yeah, and of course, they've got a very uh, skillful ambassador in Washington, Yusuf al who has played his hand very well and now for quite a long time. Um, Asla, the, the blockade of Qatar in 2017, it has the fingerprints of Mohammed bin Zayed all over it. What do you think he was wanting to do with that blockade? Uh, what did he hope to achieve? You know, because in the face of it, Doha and Turkey, they, they won that one hands down. Well, if you ask Turkish officials, their answer is often uh, that 
the, the blockade was all about uh, trying to engineer a coup in Doha. I have no way of knowing this, but what is clear is that this whole situation was enabled by the arrival of the Trump administration in November 2016. It has just made the rivalry, this regional battle line, far sharper with both sides emboldened and, uh, and thinking they have a green light from the Trump administration. It certainly was the case uh, about this embargo back in 2017. And if you remember at the time, initially the Trump administration was sort of, you know, quite distant from Qatar and uh, supportive of, uh, particularly President Trump himself was supportive of Qatar being singled out as a terrorist sponsoring state. Now that has changed. What uh, supporters of the embargo had failed to understand was that <laughs> Trump was almost indifferent to whom he did business with. Yes, he was uh, very much charmed by uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE and their entire moderate Islam rhetoric and positioning against Muslim Brotherhood. But he was equally charmed by Erdogan himself. And, uh, you know, it's often described as a bromance, the relationship between Erdogan and Trump. But we have seen, you know, how gradually the White House shifted from calling, accusing Qatar or uh, of supporting terrorism to a situation in which uh, there were uh, billions of dollars of sales, uh, military defense equipment sales to Qatar easing the embargo. But the net effect of all of this was Turkey very much moving in, pushing Turkey and Qatar closer and closer. Turkey has turned this close alliance into a military partnership with uh, expanding the capacity of its military base in Doha, uh, where there's thousands of Turkish troops, and uh, providing a layer of deterrence uh, to, to any attacks on Qatar or to any efforts to militarily, militarily isolate Qatar. And in turn, uh, I think over the years after the initial shock, this uh, Qatar, Doha doubled down in its financial support for Turkey, providing billions in uh, currency swap agreements with um, Central Bank, particularly in 2018, at a time when Turkish economy was on the verge of a bank run. This was very important. And then investment loans to uh, the country's cash-strapped treasury between 2018 and 20. And this relationship continues. It's not just about we like Muslim Brotherhood, they don't like Muslim Brotherhood. It's more the case that at a certain point in history, these two countries saw themselves under siege, threatened, and joined their fates, had their fates, their, their interests, survival interests overlapping. And that more or less continues. Obviously, the situation has changed in the Gulf. And, you know, obviously there is an easing up of that uh, embargo and uh, with the Biden administration, with Trump gone, Turkish UAE rivalry also does not have the same edge, but it has not gone away either. Yeah, that's right. And I think you make a very good point about the uh, reinforcement of the Turkish base in, in Qatar. 
And that gives them a very strong kind of toehold in a region that the Emiratis would think, hey, this is our territory. It's, it, it's a bit of a poke in the eye, isn't it? Yes, and this whole thing has ended up working for Turkey in the end, as you have alluded to in your question, because the sentiment in the country after 2016 was, we're under siege, so many enemies, we're going to fight them all simultaneously. But in this sort of very assertive fight for survival, Turkey ended up expanding its military footprint in uh, not just in Doha, but in Horn of Africa, in Eastern Mediterranean, in Libya, sort of becoming as flexing its muscles in Mediterranean. And lo and behold, it's so certainly in Syria, you know, one incursion after another. And lo and behold, what Ankara saw was that there is a vacuum that it can fill in that it is able to expand its military footprint. And that along with it came from a siege rhetoric to a resurgent, we've seen the transition to a resurgent Turkey, rising Turkey rhetoric domestically and internationally. So that's really ended up working in favor of Ankara. Now, Cinzia, the paper concludes by calling for the EU to step in and take an active hand in de-escalating the tensions by organizing a, a pan-Mediterranean conference. Just briefly sketch out for us how that would work and, and, and what the hoped for outcome would be. So basically we are thinking, um, we're looking at the Berlin process on Libya and how that has been uh, uh, built and uh, um, designed. And we think that uh, the idea of involving directly players uh, based on their involvement in, in a dossier rather than a direct participation, for instance, or presence in, in, this, in a specific area has worked quite well because it has enabled um, Europeans, for instance, to call out these regional players where they were having a disruptive uh, behavior to a, within the European neighborhood. Um, so we think that that sort of model should be expanded because Libya is, of course, part of the Eastern Mediterranean. And in so many ways, it's linked to a different levels to the conflict in the Eastern Mediterranean. A lot of um, what is going on in Libyan politics right now is uh, about the confirmation of the agreement on uh, exclusive economic zones and the delimitation of maritime borders between, for instance, Libya and Turkey. That deal is uh, one of the hottest topics uh, in Libyan politics right now. And of course, it's it, the whole purpose and the whole sense of that deal is linked to the dispute in the Eastern Mediterranean about uh, uh, maritime borders and exclusive economic zones. So basically, the point that we're trying to argue is that if we accept the idea that um, Libya is part of the European neighborhood, there is also some European responsibility in trying to pursue stability for that country. At, at, you know, it, there, there, there are other um, even bigger reasons why uh, the same framework should be applied and uh, uh, enlarged to the Eastern Mediterranean as such, an area and a dossier where uh, European players are directly involved. Um, you have, of course, Greece and Cyprus, which are 
at the heart of so many layers uh, of this conflict. You have France that is uh, a key player, a major player, again, in the, at different levels in the, in the energy dispute, in the dispute about uh, um, maritime uh, sovereignty, in uh, uh, the defense sort of alignments that we are seeing and uh, uh, in the politics of it, of course, uh, in investments in, at so many levels, uh, Europeans are directly involved and enmeshed into this conflict, which has is basically an arena where we see the interconnection and interlinkage between Mediterranean and Middle Eastern issues and European issues. Okay, now just... Uh... A final question to both of you. I'm, I'm a bit skeptical, so, so forgive me, but isn't the problem that Europe has already chosen sides? And, and you look at France, for example. France very much has chosen its side, has decided who it's going to, to support. Macron has laid that all out. I don't see France walking back from his support of the UAE. And for that matter, Erdogan or MBZ, do you, do you think they could be persuaded to... Uh, to the value of backing down? I'll, I'll throw that to you, uh, Ashla, first, and then we'll, we'll conclude with Jinzia. Deal with my skepticism. Well, I think you are right in that this will continue on some level, but with less intensity, because there's a new actor in town. It's the Biden administration. The sort of the more heady days of this rivalry took place because of the presence of of the Trump administration because you had a US president uh, was happy to go along with Haftar despite his own bureaucracy and State Department. That's no longer the case. Clearly the Biden administration is not very interested in getting embroiled in Libya, but to the extent that they are, they're not a pro-Haftar force. So in Europe, you also have a new dynamic with the Berlin process. Uh, some European countries now starting to mumble that it was a blessing that Turkey has prevented the fall of Tripoli. This was not something they were willing to say back in 2019 or even last year, but they're saying it now in part because Berlin process is relatively successful in de-escalation and in starting a new process in, and in freezing the military aspect of this conflict. And as such, uh, to an extent, I, I feel France is isolated. It, it would have to adapt to the new reality. And I think the French are also in supporting the Berlin process now. And uh, things are not, a uh, half-tar victory over Libya is not looking likely for all types of geopolitical and military reasons at this point, whereas a year ago, two years ago, it was. So nobody wants to bet for the losing horse. And that has changed. The dynamic and it's taken and then this new configuration uh, Biden administration and the changes that are taking place in Europe, particularly the emergence of Germany as a, a as a voice that wants to salvage the relationship with, with Turkey. These have certainly had an impact on the Turkish UAE rivalry, not by way of ending it but by taking the edge off, by burying it so far behind the, you know, behind the headlines. Okay, and Chinsia, last word to you. Well, I do, I mean, I do share what uh, my colleague just said. Um, and I, I, I just want to add another, uh, maybe two elements. Um, the first one is that uh, it is a characteristic of Europe that it is quite uh, um, uh, hard to, 
embrace polarized positions. And so we did see some polarized positions, uh, for instance, coming out of France in particular vis-a-vis and against Turkey, as as you both highlighted. But by sticking on that position, uh, France wasn't really able to build a consensus because there are within uh, Europe other players, such as Italy, such as Spain, such as Germany, that were very much reticent to to treat Turkey as a hostile player, because for them it isn't. So that that is the first point. And uh, the the second point is that even if it were, uh, we are in a time of political dynamism that we have to... um, sit back and think about what is the likely political evolution of the European politics with major elections coming up in Germany and the end of the Merkel era and very, very uncertain polls. And then a year uh, down the line, again, major elections in, in France. In the meantime, over the past few months, we also uh, saw a new government in Italy and Italy itself uh, trying to get even closer to the France-Germany duo uh, and sometimes trying to be a bridge in between them. So at this time in Europe, there is a perhaps rare dynamic process uh, that uh, might change uh, a lot of the considerations. Mm. So lots of moving pieces and, and lots to watch and, and watch for. Cinzia and Asla, thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guests today were Asla Aydin-Tashbash and Cinzia Bianco. Asla is a senior policy fellow and Cinzia a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. They're co-authors of Useful Enemies, How the Turkey-UAE Rivalry is Remaking in the Middle East. It's available on the ECFR website, ecfr.eu, and I highly recommend it. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. (music) 